Once again, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Turn to what? Did you say Ecclesiastes? Uh, when I first started looking at this book, I thought to myself, there's no way on earth I'm going to preach this. And I even decided if I got a couple weeks in and it wasn't going well, we're just going to go a different direction. And I called a friend that had done it and he said, you know, I tried this about five years ago. I got three sermons in and I jumped off the ship and I, I came back to it five years later. It's a tricky book, but it's a, it's a beautiful book and I hope we will see this uh, today and as we get into it. I may have mentioned this a couple months ago, I don't remember, but I commend to you a podcast by the BBC. It was put out in 2019, I think, and uh, it's, I, can't, I think it's, I can't remember the name of the podcast, but if you Google, Is Hope a Virtue? Uh, it's this discussion that this guy leads with a, with a theologian, a historian, a, all, three or four different people are really kind of in the academic world. And I saw the title and I thought, is hope a virtue? I didn't know that that was a question. And then I thought about it and I listened to the podcast and, and I realized, oh, that, that is a question uh, for those outside of Christ. And it is, in a sense, a question for us. If you're in Christ, you wrestle sometimes with, I, I, as soon as I start to hope, I can easily be let down. If I hope, it might fail me. If I have this desire and it doesn't, it doesn't come out in a certain way, is hope a virtue, even though Paul says it's one of the top three virtues, hope and love and, and, and faith, is it? Thank, is that right? I was like, wow, I, I was thinking of my page flipping and where I was. So we're going to look at this book and we're going to ask this question over the next several weeks. Is hope a virtue? We're going to read today, we're actually going to read 1, 1 through 11, and then we're going to read the conclusion, which I know you're never supposed to do that when you read a book, right? But we're going to do it. Hear God's word, and yes, this is in the Bible. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Hebel of Hebel, says the preacher. Hebel of Hebels, all is Hebel. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Everybody thoroughly encouraged? Let's jump to chapter 12. These words may surprise you when you hear them. Verse 9. 
I'm sorry, back up verse 8. Hevel of hevels, says the preacher. All is hevel. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. God, there are parts of the Bible we would rather not open. And yet you have said that all of your word is profitable for us. These are words of delight and truth. Teach us today as we sit at your feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, a couple months ago at Christmas, all of our children were in town. And while they were here, we did something that I said I would never do. We watched home videos of when they were young. Don't take them. All those videos on your iPhone, get rid of them now. Don't go back to them. Because on the same day, they all left. Four of them pulled out of my driveway within 20 minutes. And then my wife and oldest daughter decided we're going to watch the videos again. And they were laughing, cutting up, and they are funny. I, on the other hand, couldn't handle it. I went upstairs. If you know me that well, you're not surprised. I lost it. I literally had to go in the, the bathroom and shut the door, weeping. And then it got worse. The next week, I went to my dad's, who is 89 and has Alzheimer's. And I had to help do what his caregivers normally do for him a man that had to look on his side table at a note my brother has written, and the note said, Fritz is with you. He is your son. He would pick up the note, and he would look at the note, and he would look at me, and he'd say, Are you Fritz? I'm Fritz, Dad, right here in the flesh. And I would go in my room, and I would get on my knees, and I would weep. And I would look to God and say, God, I don't understand. Now, I can be given to melancholy. I'm a recovering addict of melancholy and pessimism. And God is changing me, I hope. But I want us to look at this book for a reason. If you are writing a book, and you are going to submit an idea to a publisher, what they are going to ask for is a proposal. And that proposal basically says, 
Why this book? Why should we read your book? What is this book about? And so why the book of Ecclesiastes? Because I think what Ecclesiastes does, it allows us to stare down those barrels that we do not want to stare down. The ones that we fill up our lives with activity, activity, busyness, and stuff. And we just ignore these questions until something happens. Until all of our kids come home and they all leave. Until someone is taken out of our life and we're at a funeral. And the questions come crashing in. Or we come out of a year like last year and I know some of you are made of iron and you can avoid all the noise. You don't watch the news, you don't listen to anything and you just avoid it all as if nothing's happening in the world. But for the rest of you, maybe you had a tough year and you didn't know how to engage it. You're clinging to this, you're clinging to that and your possessions didn't help you and maybe... You look for the first time and realize they could all be taken away. You saw the foundations of culture being destroyed, values, church. You see people leaving the church. You wonder if certain people in our church are even going to come back. I have been doing a Bible study through this book because I, I, was not, I just could not get a handle on it. I was reading it and reading it and studying and looking at other books. And I have a Bible study that I do, and at 6.15 one morning, 15 minutes before the Bible study, I decided, we're going to do Ecclesiastes. We're going to change what we're doing. I asked the guys, and they all said, great, we'll do that. It was the best thing I ever did. All that to say, one of the men, as we, we read through the first chapter, everybody gets a chance to comment in this Bible study. We don't go down any rabbit trails. We don't give a bunch of declarations. We sit under it. We let the text do its work. And one guy said this very honestly, he said, this sounds like a dejected old man who's just angry, and I just refuse to believe what he's saying. And I thought, that's very honest. He said, you're in good company because Martin Luther and many others looked at the book of Ecclesiastes and they said, I don't like this book, I don't think it should be in the Bible. Ernest Hemingway, who wrote, The Sun Also Rises, that is from verse 5, committed suicide. He looked down the barrel and he didn't have hope. On the other hand, you may not know this, R.C. Sproul, who many of you know in Reformed circles, some random guy quoted a random verse out of Ecclesiastes about a tree laying, falling in a forest, and it's not, does anybody hear it? It's not that one. And it led to his conversion. How about that? Before we jump in today, I want us to remember that this is wisdom literature. It is in a genre of literature in the Bible called wisdom literature. It's not the law. Yes, it's based off of the law, but it's not law. It's not do this and you will live. This is the right thing and this always happens. What wisdom literature does, it says some of that is true like the Proverbs. Yes, typically if you work hard, you make a good living, but sometimes you work hard and everything is taken from you. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? You're like, yeah, I know my taxes are going up. 
It's wisdom literature. What wisdom literature does is it creates tensions. It creates tensions. It's observations about life. And the writer is observing what he knows to be true, and then he's observing the world, and he's making these observations, and there's all of these things that just don't connect, and there's all of these tensions and perplexities. And what the tensions are trying to do is it's trying to get us to say, hey, be honest with what you see and what you know to be true. And enter that and trust God. And, and I think this is why I'm doing this book most importantly. Ecclesiastes frees us to look at the tensions, to be honest about them, to trust God, but also to look forward. This book is a forward-looking book. When I decided to do it, and I read through it, and I read through it, and I got to the end, chapter 12, and I saw what he said. Here's the end of the matter. I was like, phew, someone made it through this to the end. You know, if I preach this, I should really start with the end in mind and then read it backwards. And guess what? My brother said, hey, have you gotten this book on Ecclesiastes? I just read it. I said, what's it called? He said, Living Life Backwards. And I was like, that's from God. I'll order it. What Ecclesiastes helps us do is live life backwards in light of the future. As N.T. Wright said, having life before life after death. And hence the title, Eat, Drink, Enjoy, for tomorrow, because of the end, we will live. First point today, and I changed it a little bit from the bulletin, we need this book. We really need this book. We see that we need this book through the author and through his recipients. Let's look first at who is speaking here. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher. The words of the Hebrew word is koaleth. It's used seven times in the book. Sort of the best way that we can translate it is preacher. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But he self-identifies as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So now you see why most people assume, because this is wisdom literature, he's a son of David and he's a king in Jerusalem, we assume that it is who? Solomon. And most people believe that it was Solomon again until Martin Luther, who seemed to question everything, good or bad. He just questioned everything, right? But there's some confusion about that. I won't go into long detail. This is not a seminary class. But if you look at verse 16, just one hint, the preacher is talking here, who we might assume is King Solomon. And he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. And again, we think Solomon, God gave him great wisdom. Surpassing all who were, who were over Jerusalem before me. And here's the point. Here's the question with that. All who were over Jerusalem. In other words, 
there were other kings before him in Jerusalem. It's as if he was way down the line. See what I'm saying? That would be hard to say that that's Solomon. So what most commentators do is they say either A, this is Solomon, and there are some confusing things about that, or B, it is a type of literature where someone, a narrator, would take the voice of Solomon, a Solomon-like figure who looks through the eyes of Solomon and says, this is where we are, okay? And so we're kind of looking at it through both of those. It could be Solomon or it could be some literary figure that does not in any way undermine that we believe that this is reliable. We just don't know. Just like the author of Hebrews, we are not sure who wrote it, but it is still the Word of God. Now, one other thing quickly to note about that, you have two voices in it. You may have noticed in verse 1, the words of the preacher, and then you hear what he's saying. Hebel of Hebels, same thing in chapter 12. So basically everything from 1-2 through all the way to 12-8 is what the preacher says. And then you have a narrator on the front and a narrator on the end. Okay. What does this guy do for a living? He's a preacher. The word again is koaleth. The word means collector or collection. We actually get the word Ecclesiastes from it. Think about the word for church, ecclesia. Ecclesia means what? Congregation. So most people think this describes this Solomon-like figure who is a preacher who collects words, as he says in chapter 12, and he shares them with a collection of God's people. Why, do, why is that important? Because what you have to understand, there are so many people that look at this book and they get very confused by it. They think, this guy is a cynic. He is a pessimist, not a pastor. He is an Epicurean. He believes in this particular philosophy that came out of Greek philosophy that you need to eat and drink and be married. For tomorrow you die, you can read this book and you can think that's what it's saying. But he's a preacher-pastor. Some people think he's a humanist. Some people think he's not a believer. Some people think he's a believer who has lapsed. He's a preacher-pastor is what he is. He identifies as a king, as a preacher, as a shepherd, and as a sage. Now why is that important? Because it's tied to why we need this book. This is a guy that whether it was actually Solomon or not, or putting himself in the place of Solomon, he is saying this, I have had it all. I have experienced everything possible under the sun. Anything that your heart could desire, I've done it, I've seen it, I've had it in greater amounts than you could ever dare imagine. And I've lost my way. I've lost my way. And yet what you see is he interacts over and over through his experiences 
as we saw in chapter 12, that he's lost his way. It seems like he's lost his way. He's disoriented, and he's grabbing here, and he's going to grab there. And yet what happens at the end is that he comes out on the other side, and he doesn't just keep that knowledge and experience to himself. Here's where it's key that he's a pastor. It's all for God's people. He's a guy who had it all, tried it all, and realized that really apart from God, it means nothing. He had lost his way, and yet he came out the other side. And what he's done is he's collected these words, and he's collected these wrestlings through all of his experiences he said I want to share them with you the people of God in fact at the end what you see is that they were given in many ways for a father to sort of catechize his son but this is not a catechism that we're used to this is not how many gods are there it's a catechism that says something like where is God you see the difference And that should give you great encouragement. What, Fritz? Are you crazy? Do you not deal with perplexities and tensions in your life? Who has not dealt? Whether it is your just getting up every morning. For some of you, the tension of getting out of bed and starting another day is hard. For some of you, the tension of just being still and being quiet. And I know that sweet verse about just know that I'm God. But for you, if you're quiet and still, you go crazy. Because you don't know what to do with the silence. You have to busy yourself. For some of you, your marriage puts you in, in a tension that you, you don't know what to do with. Or, or God has given you, just, all you need is one child, but maybe you've got a couple that puts you in these tensions and perplexities. And, or maybe the culture wars that are going on right now. You don't, you don't know where to land on something. Or maybe you do know where to land and you don't know why everybody else isn't landing where you're landing. Maybe God is doing something in that process. Maybe you've lost your way and you need a pastor and a shepherd to take you through what they experienced and what they learned. And let's just say it like this. We don't like this phrase. He learned the hard way. We know, I'm sure there's some great quote. I'm sure psychologists have, have written all sorts of things on this. I didn't look for anything. But I can tell you this. We learn far more through experience. And just listening. And he did. He learned the hard way. I got an email from a friend uh, this week. And he said, hey, I am looking for a bike for my child. And I don't want to go the Walmart route. My child's seven. And I want to get a really good bike. And what do you think about this one? And I forget what it was called. But get this. It is a bike that when you hit either handbrake, it stops both tires. Now think about this for a second. What does a normal bike do? It has a front brake and a 
rear brake. But what's the problem? The problem is if you don't know which is which, it can be disastrous. If you go to stop, if you're that seven-year-old child and you don't understand how a brake works and your father tells you over and over and over, this is how it works, but you hit that front brake going down a hill, what's going to happen? You're going to go over the top. So, of course, we've said we want to prevent all accidents and all harm to our children, which I totally understand. We don't want them to experience that and learn the hard way. Now, I understand that there's good reasons for that. This is a pastor. This is a shepherd who has gone through and lost his way. And he's come out the other side and he's saying, I think the Lord's given me something to tell people who've lost their way, who need wisdom, who need this book. Secondly, Ecclesiastes gives us real needed hope. That is so cliche, I know. I probably learned in seminary never to have this as an outline point. It gives us hope. It does. It just does. But here's the problem. It doesn't sound hopeful. It's very confusing. Uh, in fact, I've never bought so many books. Poor Jacob, our treasurer, is like, I'm getting another Amazon receipt. I bought so many books to try to help understand this one word that is said 35 to 38 times in the book, Hevel. It is very confusing. In fact, your translation probably has something like vanity, meaninglessness, futility, absurdity, right? But what's the problem with that? You think they've accurately translated a word. But what they've actually done is they've jumped over the word and what it actually means to what they think it is explaining and describing and what it means. Hang with me for a second. The reason they do this is because the book seems to be so depressing. Look at verse 8 again. Look down there for a second. What does he say? All things are what? Full of weariness. Verse 9, there's nothing new under the sun. Verse 11, there's no remembrance. Verse 13, it's an unhappy business. Verse 14, chasing after the wind. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. He sounds cynical. He sounds pessimistic. He sounds, as you know, like a Winnie the Pooh character named Eeyore. It's all for naught. Nobody listens to me. Wish I could say yes, but I can't. Eeyore just couldn't say yes. He just couldn't enjoy good things, right? And, and you think that's what he's saying. But the problem is these are all interpretations of a word, hevel. You can write down H-E-B-E-L is how we transliterate that word. What does the word mean? The word means vapor, breath, mist, smoke. We say it again. Vapor, mist, smoke, breath. What the author is doing is he's giving us a word that is a picture right? It's a picture. He could have said another word 
for vanity or meaninglessness. He did not. He used a word that pictures mist and breath and smoke. And so you can understand how somebody might jump to the conclusion because life is like a mist that it's meaningless. But that does not necessitate that interpretation. Think about what those words conjure up. At least two things as I looked at commentators, and it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. What is breath and vapor and smoke and mist? It is something that is elusive, right? It's elusive. It's there, but you can't really grasp it. Have you ever tried to take vapor and keep it in a bottle? What's going to happen? It's just going to dissipate. It's elusive, right? Your kids that are a certain age, and you want them... Well, some of you are like, I can't wait till they grow up. But there are some moments where you're enjoying them and it's beautiful and you go, I just wish this could last forever. Right? Or I wish this moment could last forever. But it's elusive and, and, and a very uh, companion word to this is transient. In other words, it's so elusive that it's here and it's gone. It's temporary. One day you won't be taking babies out to the nursery, right? You're older, you know that. It's brief. Genesis 4, Adam and Eve named their two boys, Cain and Abel. Do you know where the word Abel comes from? Hevel. Because his life was what? But a vapor. So, Fritz, that still sounds negative, right? You're saying it's not necessarily negative. Think about this for a second. Look back at verse 7. This was interesting in my Bible study when we read this. Somebody said, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they're going to flow again. And somebody said, that just sounds so depressing to me. They're just going to go fill up the sea and it's never going to be filled. And somebody else said, no, that actually sounds kind of peaceful. And then somebody else said, well, it, no, it, it, it sounds like I'm not in charge. Someone has the water under control. Someone's got this. In other words, you can't bottle it up, but someone else can. Look at verse 11. No one is going to remember you, right? That can be sad. Think about it. What's your great-grandmother's name? What about your great-great-great-grandmother? What about that book that was written in the 1600s that Luther didn't write? That can be depressing. And it can also be freeing. I called Matt Griffiths when I started this. I said, Matt, you went to seminary. You got any good books on Ecclesiastes? He said, no, but I remember one good sermon where, I, where a guy said, cheer up, you're not going to be remembered. I was like, that, I'm going to preach that. It's not your job to be remembered. So much of your time is you're trying to be remembered. Trying to get a name for yourself. Understand that. And so does this guy. Here's how we're going to translate it. 
we're going to translate it as two books I looked at, and I'm just telling you, this, this is where I've landed, enigma. Enigma. Enigmatic. What is an enigma? A person that is an enigma to you, they're hard to box up. They're hard to, they're confusing to you. You're not sure where to put them, right? I'm not sure where that person falls politically. I'm not sure where that person falls on this issue. They're, or I, they're just kind of this enigma, right? Melchizedek in the Old Testament was an enigma. An, 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 I can't even say it. And if you ever want to be Tim Keller, a famous preacher, just be me for a minute. You're never going to be because you talk like that. And I'm just totally kidding. An enigma. Thank you. It's confusing. Melchizedek shows up and then he's gone. Now, who was that guy? There's a third idea to translate this word foggy or, or mist um, or vapor. And it's the word foggy. In other words, something that is a mist or a vapor or like smoke, you can see it and you might can see on the other side of it, but you can't see it clearly. In other words, it's foggy. It's confusing. You don't see it as you maybe should. And what this book is going to do is it's going to give us tensions, things that are hard to understand that are enigmas, that are unclear. And again, the author and the writer is pulling us in and it's, he's observing things and he's calling us to look at these tensions and to enter those tensions. Think about this past year for you. Think about the tensions that God has brought up that we've talked about. Think about the tensions in our cultures. All I have to do is say, we're going to have a, a class on masks and vaccines. And we'd have all kind of tensions. That's just masking a greater tension. That we're just upset and sad and grieving some things. And that's okay. What I'm saying is the author, he wants to pull you into that and say, I want you to look at your grief. And I want you to look at your sadness. And I want you to see that there's something beyond that. Something that gives you the resources to hope. Because look what he says at the end of chapter 12, verse 10. He says, everything I've written, all these perplexing things, even these things that sound depressing, they are words of delight and truth. Delight! And I'm calling you to hear them and to sit under them and to actually trust God, verse 13, when you can't see clearly. And that's not a cliche. You have somebody going through a painful thing, and you're saying, just trust God. That's not what he's saying. Please don't do that. But he's entering in. He's saying, look, I know things are dark. And I know things are hard to understand. And I know things... Don't seem hopeful. And I know you have pain. And at the end of the day, here's what I've learned. When, I, when things were, and an, I can't do it, enigma, thank you. You can laugh. I went to speech therapy as a kid. Trust God and obey him. I know you're going to be tempted to follow this person, that person, that mindset, that Christian thinker, that pastor, 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, quit talking about these pastors and preachers and how great they are. The message of the gospel is what you need to be clinging to. And that's it. Nobody's going to remember those people. What you remember is the gospel. And that's why it's delightful. That's why he says you can live with hope with the enigmas, with the incoherence, with the, the word for goad firmly fixed. Yes, it's a shepherd's thing. Yes, it, it kind of helps us along. Yes, it's hard. But on the other side, the word is, is like a peg in a log cabin is the best way I can describe it. It's a peg that sort of went through the nail. I don't understand all the carpentry stuff, but here's the idea. The peg is what holds the house together. You see what he's saying? It's like goads firmly fixed. He says, if you get the message of Ecclesiastes, you will have resources, even when you can't see or think straight, to navigate the perplexities and not just navigate them and not just be Eeyore, not just be cynical. We need no more cynicism in the church than we already have. Fritz doesn't need to be as cynical as he is. We need the hope of the gospel because what this book is going to do is he's going to say, look way into the future here. Look at the end. Here is the end of the matter. And what the what he's doing is saying for us that we have the New Testament, we have Christ. We know that he's saying, look beyond the end of Ecclesiastes. Because this isn't the end of the matter. The book is saying, I want to point you forward to another shepherd and another preacher and another pastor and another king over Jerusalem another wise sage, another judge who will come back and make things all right and clear everything up. The things you can't fix, the things you can't control, He will clear them up. No matter how foggy it is. Coming to a close here, I promise, but N.T. Wright said this in his book, Surprised by Hope. He said, we do see through a glass darkly. It's foggy. All our language about future states of the world and of ourselves consists of complex pictures that may or may not correspond very well to the ultimate reality, the tension. But that doesn't mean it's any man's guess or that every opinion is as good as every other. And then he says this, best quote in the whole book, he says, suppose someone came forward out of the fogginess to meet us. And as a Christian, what we believe is that someone did. Someone came into this incoherent, confusing world full of enigmas. I'm really got to work on this. And he was disoriented beyond anything that you and I will ever experience because we can never lose the Father's love. He lost it so that the judge of all the earth could be judged for us so that we can be God's children. And what did He do? He came out on the other side, didn't He? 
Hope is a virtue. Let me close with this. That podcast that I mentioned, it was like 57 minutes. And I got to, it, it, they basically were, were looking at the history of hope throughout the past 2,000 years. And really the cool thing was the Christian point was the best. Like, like we were the only hopeful people at the end of the day. Emmanuel can't just a little bit, but anyway. They go through 2,000 years, and it just gets worse and worse. And the podcast, like, everybody's trying to have hope, but they just keep, well, this guy said this, and this lady said this, and these people say this. And you get to the podcast, and you're like, yeah, there's no hope. And then it ends. You're like, that's it? But there wasn't. There was 16 minutes of bonus time. Didn't know you did bonus time on podcasts. But a lady comes on and goes, oh, we're going to give you, it's British thing, we're going to give you 16 more minutes of bonus time. And then this lady comes on and she says this, I really hate that we ended with such despair. Because there were people like J.R. Tolkien, and I went, I'm listening. There were people like Tolkien that believed in fairy tales. A fairy tale, in essence, means that the end has a happy conclusion. She said this, this is what Tolkien believed. Despite much evidence, what we observe, there will be, his famous word, a eucatastrophe. What is a eucatastrophe? A eucatastrophe is a sudden or favorable revolution of events in a story. It is a happy ending. This is how Tolkien said it. A return of the good, joy from beyond the world, as poignant as grief. Oh, I was like jumping up and down on my walk, and then this lady jumped in. Yeah, but Tolkien! I was like, ah, stop! Let it end with hope. Because hope is a Christian virtue. And Ecclesiastes will give it to us. We need this book. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us hope. Real, grounded, Christ-centered, spirit-given, church-believing hope. And then I pray that everybody, whether at home right now or here, everybody a part of Redeemer, friends and members, would, would take this book and read it. Sit in it. Sit under it. Reflect on it. Let it do its work in us. And God, that you would bless this series and you would truly not make us those who ignore but can look at the hopelessness and conclude that there is a better end to the story. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.